0: Hello and welcome to our latest episode in our Herbert Smith Freehills Public M&A podcast series. My name's Antonia Kirkby and I'm joined today by Lucy Robson, who also specialises in public M&A. Today we're going to talk about take privates or P2P bids. The COVID-19 pandemic has meant that we've seen a drop-off in public M&A activity in the UK, but as uh, prices stabilise and activity picks up again, we expect to see financial buyers such as private equity and sovereign wealth funds leading that activity. Many of them have committed cash or dry powder ready to spend and there are likely to be a number of companies who need to find a buyer and some of them pretty fast and a buyer which has readily available cash is going to be a more attractive prospect. So we had actually seen an uptick in PE activity before the pandemic hit but just by way of background for a number of years we'd seen less PE involvement in UK public markets And that was because, in part, due to the changes made to the takeover code following the craft takeover of Cadbury. The way that bid played out led people to conclude that the rules were tipped too far in favour of a bidder. So the takeover code was overhauled in 2011 and the consensus after that was that public M&A would be harder or at least less attractive for PE houses in particular. Because of the rule changes, for example, they would no longer be able to get a break free from the target if a deal failed, and those sorts of rule changes seem to impact PE bidders in particular. But after a number of years of them being fairly quiet in UK public markets, in recent years, the stiff competition in private auction sales and the attractiveness of public companies meant that PE houses had learnt to adapt to those obstacles and so had returned to the public markets. But whilst we expect them to be leading the way as public M&A activity picks up again in the UK, financial buyers do still need to navigate a number of issues on a public M&A transaction that they would not encounter on a private M&A transaction, including rules around secrecy and acting in concert. And today we're going to talk about what some of those issues are. So Lucy, should we
1: start with the rules on secrecy? Why might they be problematic for a financial buyer? Yeah, for sure, Antonia. So the code stresses the importance of secrecy at the outset of a bid, and a number of the rules in the code reinforce that. So first off, we've got the put up or shut up, or PUSU regime. If a bidder's interest in a target leaks, that bidder will have to be named as the possible bidder, and it will then have 28 days, at the end of which it must either put up, meaning it has to announce a firm intention to make an offer, or shut up, which means it has to announce that it won't make a bid, and then it will be restricted under the code from re-engaging with the target for six months. Now that 28-day deadline, will only be extended by the panel if the target asks for an extension. The bidder can't actually ask for one. Now, 28 days is a pretty tight timetable to put together a bid, especially because a firm offer announcement has to include something called a cash confirmation statement, meaning that the bidder has to have cash available on a certain funds basis. So if you're starting from the beginning, 28 days is actually a very short time to put together a fully baked offer, including with committed financing. And that means it's really important that a possible deal is kept as confidential as possible in those early stages. You really don't want to be outed prematurely. And for a PE bidder that may need to involve a number of different parties in an offer, that may be very, very hard to keep it confidential for that amount of time.
0: Yes, and of course, that announcement obligation might actually be triggered even before the bidder has approached the target. So if it's actively considering a bid and it leaks and it can be linked to the bidder considering that target, then an announcement might be required by the panel. So as you say, if you're involving different parties early on an offer, it is important to maintain secrecy at all times. So how about the rule of six? What impact does that have on PE bidders in particular?
1: Yeah, of course. So under the so-called rule of six, the panel can require an announcement if more than six people are approached in connection with a possible offer. Now, rule 2.2e of the code actually refers to discussions or negotiations relating to an offer being extended to include more than a very restricted number of people is the phrase, but actually panel practice statement 20 tells us that that specific number is six. Now, your advisors don't count towards the six, but otherwise, most other people that you will speak to do. And so that includes potential consortium members, finance providers, and that's providers of either debt or equity finance, and possible members of the management team. So you can see that on a PE bid, particularly if it's a consortium, that limit of six can be reached very quickly. Now, you can ask the panel for consent to approach more than six parties, but in reality, they won't often agree to it unless you're very, very close to announcing a deal.
0: Thanks, Lucy. And for anyone who wants any more information about the requirements around secrecy and possible offers and the rule of six, panel practice statement number 20, which Lucy mentioned, is essential reading in this area. So moving on now to other aspects of the code that PE bidders may find challenging. What about the financing arrangements on a bid?
1: Yeah, so PE bids are generally likely to be for cash. And as we said earlier, an announcement of a firm intention to make an offer, or the Rule 2.7 announcement as it's called, has to include something called a cash confirmation statement. The cash confirmation statement is basically where the bidder's financial advisor confirms that the bidder has sufficient cash resources available to pay any cash consideration in full. Now, that means that the financial advisor will have to go through a due diligence process before announcing the bid, where it looks very carefully at any financial arrangements. And the financial advisor is particularly incentivized to do that, because if the bidder doesn't pay in full, the financial advisor itself may have to pay up. Now, if there is debt financing... Financing has to be on what's called a certain funds basis, and the conditions to draw down on a normal uh, vanilla financing facility just won't be acceptable. So the advisor has to look very carefully at the terms and conditions to draw down, and all the conditions have to be in the control of the bidder or reflect any conditionality to the offer so that there is as much certainty as possible that those funds will be available when they're necessary and it's not out with the bidder's control to access that funding. However, if there's equity financing, the diligence will be a lot more complicated and the limited partners or investors in the fund might be asked to give something called equity commitment letters. And those are letters where they irrevocably undertake to put up the agreed amount of cash for the bid. Again, just as a way of evidencing that when that funding is needed, it will be available. And there's no circumstances uh, when the bidder won't be able to draw on it. It's also very important that bidders remember that all financing arrangements have to be disclosed. And that means that they're both described in the offer document and put on display on a website. Now, that said, it is the funding of the bid vehicle itself that has to be disclosed, and so not the details of the financing further up the P funds chain. But still, it's a very important point to be aware of and not something, of course, we see on private transactions. Thanks, Lucy.
0: I think another area that PE bidders need to be aware of is Rule 16 of the Code and what it means for management participation and incentivisation. Do you just want to talk us through that?
1: Yeah, of course. So PE bidders will often want to retain existing management in the target and incentivize them to stay and maintain their performance. And the way of doing that is to get them to participate in the bid vehicle itself. That said, If management are target shareholders and the opportunity to invest in a bid vehicle isn't being generally made available to all the target shareholders, and after all we know that PE funds usually make cash bids, then that can conflict with general principle one of the code, which is that the same offer has to be generally made available to all shareholders. Now this is specifically addressed in Rule 16.2 of the code, and it sets out what a bidder can do around management incentivisation. The rules are fairly complicated, but in brief, any discussions around management incentivisation have to be disclosed under Rule 16.2, and that means set out in the offer documents. Now, the target's financial advisor will also have to confirm that the arrangements are fair and reasonable if discussions are advanced. And if the value of the arrangements is significant or they're very unusual, the panel could actually require that independent shareholders in the target vote to approve the arrangements.
0: So, again, a level of transparency and scrutiny that will be alien to a PE bidder, not used to public M&A transactions in the UK. And it's also worth stressing that actually they need to familiarise themselves with all the takeover code requirements on information sharing, uh, in particular to be aware that when they do share anything with certain target shareholders, they may well have to disclose that to all shareholders. And again, as you said, it's all about ensuring that all shareholders are treated equally under general principle one.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: So I think the final topic I wanted to cover today, Lucy, is the concept of acting in concert under the code. And maybe this is the most complicated we've left to last. But again, in particular the implications for PE houses. So what can you tell us about that?
1: Yeah, of course. And as you say, Antonia, acting in concert is a core concept, but it's also very, very convoluted. So where parties are acting in concert, there's a number of implications. First one is that you have to disclose your interests in the target publicly and any share purchases by a member of the concert party can set a floor price for the offer. That basically means set a minimum price that the bidder has to then pay to all target shareholders. But the most significant area where concert parties' interests matter is actually under Rule 9. Rule 9 is very important and it says that where a party acquires shares that takes its interest through 30% of the target, or higher, or if it has an existing interest between 30% and 50%, which is then increased, that party has to make a mandatory cash offer for the company. Now, the offer has to be in cash, and the only condition it can have is a 50% acceptance condition. No other conditions are allowed. And the price that you can offer will also be prescribed by the code. So as you can see, it's definitely not something that you want to tip into accidentally. So the key thing to be aware of is where you sit in relation to that key 30% threshold. So you need to understand at the start who your concert parties are as bidder and what interests they have and how close you are to the 30% threshold. It's absolutely critical to understand this, and it's also critical to make certain that when you've identified your concert party, you make certain that they don't buy any shares that could tip you through that crucial 30% threshold. So I guess the key question is who is treated as acting in concert? And there's a very lengthy definition in the code. And to be honest, we could do a whole podcast just on that. But in a nutshell, it's basically companies who are cooperating to obtain or consolidate control of a company. Some parties are presumed to be acting in concert. And that includes, first of all, a company with its parent, um, subsidiaries and fellow subsidiaries, as well as their associated companies. And now, associated companies are described as a party in which the concert party member has a 20% stake or has a 20% plus stake in it. Basically, for a PE bidder, that means that the PE fund will be a concert party of the bid vehicle. Any limited partner investors in the fund won't generally be treated as part of the concert party. But a limited partner that co-invests to a significant extent with the PE fund within the structure may be treated as a concert party member. And you may find that other entities in which a PE fund is invested are also caught. But where you have a PE fund with a particularly large portfolio of investments, you can get a waiver from the panel. And it's very important that you assess this early on and engage with the panel So that you have the same understanding of your concert party. But the key takeaway is that a PE bidder must identify who its concert party members are and who they could be early in the process and understand exactly what interests they hold.
0: Thanks Lucy, so a lot for PE bidders to consider there. For more information it's worth taking a look at the article we wrote for PLC magazine towards the end of last year. And in it, we talk about some of these topics in a bit more detail and cover off a few other issues that PE bidders may be unfamiliar with on a code transaction. So thank you, Lucy, for joining me today. And thank you to you too, our listeners. We'd welcome any feedback or thoughts you have on our podcasts and any areas you'd like to see discussed in future episodes. And we look forward to you joining us on our next one. Thank you.